you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6. As we've been working our way through the book of Esther, we've seen that this book emphasizes the sovereignty of God in his providence. And what that means is, is that God sovereignly limits, orders, and controls all things. His providence is how he exercises his sovereignty so that his plans are established. So that's what we mean by providence. God exercises his sovereignty and his providence is how he exercises it, how he brings about his plans. God is up to something good. God has a purpose. And so he limits and orders and controls all things for, this is his purpose, for his glory and for his people's good. And we will see that this morning. We see verses like this in the scripture. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. God has plans and he's sovereignly bringing them to fruition. In Isaiah, we read this. My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So because God is sovereign, he accomplishes his plans and nothing can stop that. Nothing can thwart his purposes. He's in control. His will is being done in heaven and on earth. And as Christians, when we read our Bibles and we study this topic, we affirm that. We affirm his sovereignty. We we see the big picture of what God is doing. He's exalting his son to all peoples. That's his master plan. That's what he's doing. And though we believe that, and though we recognize that as Christians, I think sometimes we, we fail to realize that for God to accomplish all these great things, he has to control all the little things. And that's where it gets personal, right? That's where, that's where we struggle with this, because there's a lot of personal things going on in our lives that we wrestle with God about, right? But God is over every small detail of every event. God is the one directing the affairs of men. And God will even use the evil choices of people and their evil deeds of people to establish his purposes. And in this chapter, we're going to actually see how far God's sovereignty goes. What we're going to see in this chapter is God not only controls the hearts of kings, he controls the sleep of kings, he controls what kings read and when they read it. And God does all of that for his glory and his people's good. See, understanding this, that God has sovereignty over the smallest details gives us hope. Because sometimes you're going to find yourself in some situation and you're going to be wondering what God's doing. Maybe it's you're, you're being treated unfairly or unjustly or just some trouble, some heartache, and you're, you're like wondering, what is God doing? Well, this truth about his sovereignty helps us understand that behind everything, God is accomplishing something. 
He's accomplishing his greater purposes, which are for the good of his people and his exaltation. And so it's in passages like this that we're going to look at this morning that enable us to trust God during those times. And so I've titled this, Trusting God's Providence. Trusting God's Providence. And we're going to see how God humbles the exalted and exalts the humble. And what God wants us to to be is humble, right? He wants us to humbly trust him, right? Trust his wisdom, trust his power, trust his love, trust his providence. Now, before we jump into chapter six, let's just remember what happened in the previous chapter. Haman, remember, the enemy of the Jews in chapter five was at the height of earthly glory. He had been promoted by the king to the highest place in the kingdom. He's second only to the king. He has been given the king's authority to pass laws in the king's name that can't be revoked. The king even passed a law for everybody to bow to Haman as he walked by. We we saw that he was exceedingly wealthy. He was blessed blessed with ten sons. And even the queen had invited only him to a banquet with the king. I mean, was there a man ever more honored and more esteemed than Haman? He had everything going for him. He had great power, amazing influence, incredible authority, boundless wealth, ten sons, and exceeding honor. He, He was at the pinnacle of worldly greatness. And from all outward appearances, Haman should have been happy. Right? He had everything the world tells you that you need to make you happy. And yet we find him a miserable man. Actually, we find him a very angry man. None of those things, he says, satisfied him because his enemy, Mordecai, wouldn't show him respect. And what we saw is that Haman's problem was that he was proud. He was proud. He boasted in all these things, all the things that he had, his accomplishments, his privileges, none of that satisfied. Even though he had everything in the world going for him, he was discontent. He was drunk with worldly glory, but his soul was still thirsty. And that's because the blessings of the world, they can't satisfy the longings of your soul. They can't satisfy the longings of your soul. Only God can do that. Through Christ. One man made Haman's day miserable. And so because he's enraged at him, because he wouldn't bow, he planned to do away with him. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows, 50 cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it, then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. So he believed murdering his enemy would satisfy his soul. That would bring him joy. But you know what? It wouldn't bring him joy. Because his pride would raise up other Mordecai's. So the problem wasn't Mordecai, the problem was his own heart. He was living his life centered around himself. You know what that's called? That's called idolatry. You, you make yourself out to be God. You know why that doesn't satisfy you? Because you can't make everyone bow to you. You're not God. 
And so you're going to be left discontent, not happy. Because you were designed by God to find pleasure in Him alone. That's why Jesus alone can satisfy your hunger and quench your thirst so that you thirst no more. When you've tasted of Christ, you know what? All you want is more of Christ. And so pride doesn't lead to contentment or satisfaction. But because Haman was proud, he thought what would please him was Mordecai's head. He'd had enough of this man. The the irony of this, remember, Haman had already gone to the king to get a law passed to kill all the Jews, which included Mordecai. So this man already had a death sentence on him. Oh, but Haman, he's discontent. He can't wait till the 12th month. I got to get rid of him now. He must die. And so he has a gallows built 75 feet high to hang him on. And he plans to go to the king in the morning and ask for Mordecai's head. And think about this. He's the king's favorite. So the king surely would grant him this one small request. I mean, the king already is allowing him to kill all the Jews. What's one more? So things are not looking good for Mordecai. How's he going to escape this situation? Who is there to help him? Listen, he's in in an impossible situation. But nothing is impossible with God. Amen? See, nothing's impossible with God. And what chapter 6 reveals here is the providence of God and all the small details. And we're never even going to see God's name mentioned here, right? Oh, but we're going to see him at work. His providence, I think, is most clearly seen in this chapter. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. That's the theme of 5, 6, and 7. And in this chapter, we're going to see how God humbles the exalted and exalts the humble. And when you see that, the whole purpose of this is to help us trust God's providence. Wherever he happens to have you right now, trust his providence so let's read what it says look at verse one during that night now this is remember the the day when mordecai's gonna uh, haman's gonna come and ask for mordecai's head so this is the night before during that night the king could not sleep so he gave an order to bring the book of the records the chronicles and they were read before the king it was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers that they had sought to lay hands on king Ahasuerus the king said what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this then the king's servants who attended him said nothing has been done for him so the king said who's in the court Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Who would the king desire to honor more than me? Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let him bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. 
and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then the king said to Haman, take quickly the robes and the horse as you have said and do so for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home mourning with his head covered. Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh's wife said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. This is a great story, huh? Haman exalted himself, so God opposed him. Mordecai was humble, so God exalts him. One's on the way up, one's on, the other's on the way down. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to just, just kind of walk through this, and we want to see how God orchestrates all things, all the small things, so that his plan is accomplished and so that we would trust him. So that we would trust him. So to, first, to trust God, you must know this. God exerts control over all events. That's what you've got to know. God exerts control. If you're going to trust God through all what you're going through right now, you've got to know God exerts control over all events. Remember Haman's plan, right? He's going to go to the king bright and early in the morning to ask to hang Mordecai. I mean, this is serious. This is urgent. For Mordecai to be saved, God must act now. But what can God do? How is he going to get Mordecai out of this situation? Has the devil gained the upper hand? And of course, we just read the story. We know, no, God's not fretting. He easily saves Mordecai. Why? Because God is sovereignly controlling every little event to get his man delivered. And beloved, God will do that for you. So you don't have to worry. Sometimes we worry over things for, for no reason. We just need to trust God. So let's, let's see what God does here. God's control over the small events. First thing we see God doing here is this. He gives the king a bad case of insomnia. Verse 1. During that night, that night before Haman was coming, that night the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of the records, the chronicles, that, and they were read before the king. The, the king couldn't sleep. Apparently God controls your sleep. Or maybe we should put it this way. God knows how to keep you awake. He knows how to keep you awake. And sometimes we keep ourselves awake, right? We're, 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 we're worried about things and we're stressing over things and we can't sleep. 
But at other times, you're, you may be dead tired, and for some reason you can't sleep, and God's going to keep you awake. He wants you to meditate on him and his word. And sometimes he keeps you awake because the only, that's the only time he seems to be able to get your attention. The psalmist says, I meditate on you in the night watches. That's Psalm 63, but it, it's repeated several times. God kept the psalmist awake because he wanted him to meditate on God. Well, the king can't sleep, so he commands the book of the records to be brought to him and read in his presence. The book of the records were the chronicles. It was the official news of the kingdom that was written down. So this is the mundane official business that was continually being written down. If anything could put you to sleep, that would probably be it. Just read from that. Maybe that's why the king ordered it read. I don't know. I mean, if you can't sleep, maybe you take NyQuil or some sleeping pill, or maybe you listen to a sermon. I, I notice that works for some of you. <laughs> well, the king had the book of Chronicles read to him, but even that couldn't put him to sleep. Why? God wants him awake. God wants him awake. And so God's going to keep him awake. God controlled his sleep. Think about that. That's a small little detail, right? It's nothing. Second thing we see God's, in God's control over the details here is that God directed the king to read what Mordecai had done for him. Verse 2. It was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said... What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servant who attended him said, nothing's been done for him. So the servants of the king just happened to read what Mordecai had done for the king. It says here in verse 2, it was found written. That, that word found means to appear, to be present. And in other words, they, they just happened to come across this and read this account. Do you think that happened by accident? Do you really think that happened by chance? On the night, or really the morning, that Haman's coming? No, things don't happen by chance. They don't happen by accident. God is the one directing him to read this text. I mean, why didn't the king read about someone else who had done something for him? Why did he happen to read about Mordecai? Well, he happened to read about Mordecai because he's in great danger. And God's about to rescue him. But God is not just about to rescue him. God's going to exalt him. And so, God directs the king to read how Mordecai saved his life. Now, what's interesting about this is that Mordecai had saved the king's life back in chapter 2, remember? That was four years prior to this event. So how did they happen to pick the one book that had Mordecai's name written, it, written in it? I mean, this may have been the only book his name had been written in. And I'm sure it wasn't a very long entry. It's probably just a scribble somewhere. But do you see how God providentially controls even the minutest details? Do, do you see how awesome God is? 
Do you see the glory of God here? He's over everything. He controls the hearts of kings, the sleep of kings, when the king reads what he will read, and even he controls when it's read because the timing was crucial if God's plan is going to succeed. Right? Timing is crucial. And what Mordecai had done had long been forgotten. It had never been rewarded. And and that was actually very unusual because Persian kings were known to be generous in rewarding loyal actions. Now let's let's just bring ourselves into the picture here, right? There's going to be times when you do something and you're totally overlooked. You've probably had that happen to you. You're going to do something that should have been rewarded or at least acknowledged, but you're forgotten. You're just passed over. You're ignored. I've seen that happen in the workplace. I've seen that happen in the church, right? So someone is just faithfully serving. They're always doing things in the background, and it all seems to go unnoticed. Listen, it doesn't go unnoticed. God sees it all. And God doesn't forget. Hebrews tells us, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered to and in still ministering to the saints. God doesn't forget. He sees that. He sees what you're doing. He sees your service in his name. So you may go unnoticed, but the author of Hebrews puts God's character on the line, doesn't he? He's not unjust. That means he's just. And so because he's just, he's going to reward you in due time. Amen? At the right time. Because timing is critical. Timing is critical to bring about the greatest good. That's what God's concerned about. There's something bigger going on here than you and I. And it's to bring about the greatest good so God gets the greatest glory. So the king may have forgotten what Mordecai had done. God didn't forget. And God brings this up precisely at the right time because his timing's perfect. So maybe you're overlooked with something. God never overlooks. He never forgets. And someday he will reward you. And your reward will be way out of proportion than what you did. And the result will be you'll give him praise. You'll give him thanks. So we could trust his providence. So when we see things like this, we could trust him. God knows what he's doing. And so the king wants to know what, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai. He's found out nothing's been done. And that that's had to surprise him. This man saved my life and I didn't honor him? Well, it's time to show him honor. And and what a reminder for us, right? If someone has done something kind to you, it's appropriate to show your appreciation and gratitude. That is appropriate. And I would say this is especially true of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? Right? Has Jesus shown you a kindness? And, and, And if you understand what Christ has done for you, if you understand the, the greatness of his person, the God who spoke everything that you see into existence, the God who upholds all things, 
The God who then humbled himself to take on humanity to die in your place. When you grasp the significance of that, oh, you want to show him gratitude. Paul says it this way in Romans, that you, you, you present your body as a living sacrifice which is pleasing to God. I mean, what an image, right? A, a, a sacrifice was something that was killed, right? He says, no, you're a living sacrifice. What does that mean? You, you die to self. You deny yourself and you live for Christ in his glory. Why? He deserves that. He's worthy of that. That's what you show gratitude for Christ's glory and his kindness. That's the appropriate response. Let's, let's think for a moment. Consider just what, what's Mordecai been doing the past four years since he saved the king's life and never got rewarded. Well, verse 10 says he was sitting at the king's gate. That's where he did, had his job. There's, there's no mention in the text anywhere of him sulking or pouting or complaining that he never got rewarded or promoted or recognized. And yet, how often do we hear, right, in the workplace, sometimes even in the church, where people are grumbling and complaining because they got passed over for a promotion or reward? Well, that's not what Mordecai did. Uh, apparently, it was business as usual for him. He just went about his job. And you know what that reveals? His humility. And it reveals his humility. He's going to let God exalt him in due time. And God will. And that's the posture we're to have, that God wants us to have. When, when you go through something that, where you've been overlooked, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the proper time, First Peter 5. He's going to do that. Just humble yourself, and he will reward you. We, we, we must never think we're a victim of circumstances. I mean, that, that's, that's the language of the world, right? I'm just a victim of circumstance. No, God is in control. God sees. God knows. He will exalt the humble at the proper time. Let's also consider something else here. Why did God wait to exalt Mordecai? Why did he wait? Well, we know from the story that God postponed exalting him to a certain time the right time so god would be glorified in saving mordecai and then exalting him see god waited to exalt him because he wanted to humble haman god has a bigger plan here god is going to take the enemy of the jews and turn his evil plans on his own head so God is exalted and saves his people. And all of God's people will see that. And they will marvel at his wisdom and his power and his majesty. You see, God's purpose with Mordecai was greater than Mordecai. This was about exalting his name to his people. And he's going to do that through Mordecai. At the proper time. At the right time. And we read this now, 2,500 years later, and we're still praising God for what he did, right? We see it. And that's what God wants us to see. So God's plans are bigger than us. So there may be things happening in your life, and you're not sure what's going on, but God has a greater purpose than just you and mine. And so, yes, God is going to work out all things together for good for those who love God. 
But God's going to do it in such a way that his greater purposes are also accomplished. So that we can cry out with Paul, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Oh, who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen, right? Only a mighty, majestic, all-powerful God can do things like that. And that's why we praise him. That's why we sing. Right? Because he alone is worthy. And so God waited to exalt Mordecai. But the other thing we see here is this. He didn't wait too long. He didn't wait too long. Because if he would have delayed one more day, even one more hour, it would have been too late for Mordecai. His timing was perfect. God's not asleep. God is not uninterested in you. God is not on vacation. No, he sees what's going on. He's watching over you. And he sees what you're going through and he will deliver you in his perfect timing. And sometimes he waits to the last hour. Sometimes to the last minute. Things are not looking very good, God. If you could come now, that would be great. And sometimes he does that. He waits like right up to the last moment. So he gets the most glory. That's why he does it. This is all for his glory, all for the good of his people. And this is the providence of God. He's directing the affairs of men so that his plans are accomplished. And so the king was reminded Mordecai saved his life and was never rewarded for his kindness. The third thing we see here about God's control over all events is this. God directed Haman to enter the palace precisely at the perfect moment. Little small detail. But he directs Haman to enter the palace at precisely the perfect moment. Look at verse 4. So the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. Haman arrives right on time. God's perfect timing, which was no accident. The timing could not be more perfect or maybe more bad, depending on your perspective. Which one you're looking at it from? For Haman, this was bad timing. So Haman comes in to ask the king to hang Mordecai, the same man the king wants to honor. So my question is this How did Haman happen to walk in at that moment? Why didn't someone else walk in before him? I mean, do you think in this great kingdom, that there were maybe some other nobles, other officials who had urgent business with the king that morning? I mean, why didn't they get there first? Well, 
God's controlling the smallest details to accomplish his purposes. So I, I can just picture this, right? Some nobleman, he's got this urgent business with the king that morning, and it was such a pressing issue that he decides, you know, I'm going to be first in line today. I'm getting up early. I'm getting over there. I'm going to be first in line because of this, is, this is pressing. But on the way to the palace, he gets a flat tire. But he's, he, he quickly changes his tire, and he's like, he, he had left so early. He's, he's confident I'm still going to get there first. And he jumps back in his car, and all of a sudden, he gets stuck in a traffic jam. I was like, where did this come from? This never happens. But he finally gets to the palace. He's running up the steps, and he sees Haman enter right before him. Now, of course, none of that is in the text. But the point is... God had to control hundreds and thousands of other things so that Haman entered first that morning, precisely at the right moment. Because God's plan was to humble Haman. He exalted himself, and God's going to humble him. Think about your life. God is overseeing tens of thousands of things in the lives of tens of thousands of people to accomplish his very purposes day by day, including what happens in your life. And we see a little small sample of that here. The proud God humbles. That's what God's doing here. The proud God humbles, which he will do to you if you don't humble yourself before him. Listen, I mean, just as we're studying the providence of God, it is no accident you're in here today. Did you think about that? It's no accident you're here this morning. God wants you to hear this. And God wants you to humble yourself under his mighty hand. He wants you to bow to Christ to receive forgiveness. God wants to bless the humble, but you've got to humble yourself. And when you bow yourself to the Lord Jesus, here's how God will exalt you. He will forgive you of your sins. But he won't just forgive you. He will exalt you to the status of a son or daughter of God. Will you humble yourself before Christ? Humble yourself. Receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that's what he'll do for you. How amazing. You know, but even as Christians, we have to continue to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, don't we? Isn't pride something we continually battle? And as we looked a little bit last week, pride is seen in so many different ways. One way is complaining against or passing judgment on God because you don't like the difficult situation you're in. And so you're mad at God. That's pride. That's not being humble. And yet we wrestle with that, don't we, at times? Pride is seen in anger. When, when you believe your rights or expectations are not being met. And so we have these expectations. And then we get a flat tire, like I mentioned earlier. And then we get angry. I was in a hurry today. It could be seen in many different ways, obviously. 
Pride is seen when you seek independence or control of a situation instead of waiting on God, and then you're just going to take matters in your own hands, and then, of course, it always makes it worse. Pride is seen in resisting authority, whether at work when your boss tells you to do something a certain way and you refuse, or sometimes it's seen in the church, right, when the elders want to do something a certain way and you simply refuse to comply. See, those are all examples of uh, pride. God opposes the proud. And what these verses reveal for us is that God is providentially in control of all things to bring about his predetermined purposes. And he controls, we see here, even the smallest events so that things work out exactly as he planned. And we see his hand here controlling seemingly unimportant, trivial events like being able to sleep or not, directing what someone reads, orchestrating who walks into a building at the right moment, and controlling 10,000 other things. He's working all these things out for his good, for his glory, for our good. And so we can take comfort in that. Right? You can rest in that. Rest in that. You don't have to be anxious. Nothing happens by accident. There's a divine purpose that God is accomplishing. He's at work, even if you can't see what he's doing. Now, second, secondly, to trust God, see how God employs a person's pride against him. Right? This is, this is where it gets funny. But, but see how God employs a person's pride against him. Look at verse not, uh, 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Who would the king desire to honor more than me? Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let him bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. Let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. So here's Haman, right? He's coming this morning. He comes into the court. He's he's coming to ask the king a favor. Now, I'm sure the king was used to that, right? This This happens every day, right? People are always coming to the king asking for a favor. And so Haman's brought in, but instead of asking Haman what he wanted, the king asked Haman a question. Actually, he asked him for some advice. But I I don't want you to miss that, right? Even this small detail of who asked the question first was important. Right? God's overseeing the details of who spoke first. Before Haman could speak, the king wants to know what should be done for the man he wants to honor. Again, I, I just want you to notice... Why did the king say, what is to be done for the man the king wants to honor? Why didn't he just say, what, the, what should be done for, the, for Haman or, or Mordecai, who the king wants to honor? Why, why doesn't he mention his name? So again, he, even the choice of words, we see the providence of God. 
words that come out of your mouth, who speaks first, all under God's control. Well, Haman, we see here, he's so full of himself that he thinks the king would only want to honor him. I mean, who would have thought there's no one greater than me in this whole kingdom? And that's what arrogant people assume. They, they have a, such a high opinion of themselves, they believe everyone else does too. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before stumbling. And we laugh at this, right? We see this, we laugh. And, and yet having a high view of ourselves is probably something most of us have struggled with at one time or another, I would imagine, right? I mean, Paul told the Romans... For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. So if he has to command them not to do that, then obviously that's something we struggle with. Don't overestimate yourself. Don't, don't, Don't value your abilities or gifts or worth but make an accurate estimate of yourself. As my pastor used to tell us, we're all replaceable parts. That's good to remember that. Well, when Paul says that to the Romans, and he says, don't think too highly of yourself, he's talking about the giving of spiritual gifts. I mean, think about that. Gifts are something given. They're not something earned. There's something given by God's grace. So why are you thinking so highly of yourself? Why why do you think you're something important? Because you have this gift that was given to you. Galatians says this, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Don't think you're something when you're nothing. Or as Paul asked the Corinthians, why do you... What do you have that you did not receive? I mean, everything you have, Corinthians, you're boasting in all these things, but remind remind yourself of something. What do you have that you haven't received? Well, I've received everything. Yep. Quit your boasting. Everything you have, your life, your breath, your your intellect, your gifts, your opportunity, all, all that's given to you by God. So have a right perspective of yourself. Why are you boasting? Think as to have sound judgment, Paul says. Instead of being proud, be grateful and humble. Haman was arrogant. And so God's going to use his pride to destroy him. So Haman begins to tell the king all the things he'd like to have done to himself. Haman wants a royal robe the king has worn. Why? Because he wants to have the appearance of a king. He wants to ride a horse that the king has ridden. But not just any horse, a horse that had a royal crown put on it. Because Haman wants to be king for a day. Oh, but even that's not enough. Get one of your most noble princes and have him lead the man you want to honor around the city square and make this pronouncement over and over. This is what shall be done for the man the king wants to honor. Because I want to be paraded around the city square so that everybody can see me. Everybody can see how great I am, how awesome I am. And he even picked one of us, the most noble princes to do this because I'm so far above everybody else. I, I, I. 
Sounds like Satan, right? Was there ever a man more arrogant and more full of himself than Haman? And yet, I, I think if we're honest, we would have to confess that sometimes we've had thought highly of ourselves like this. And, and that's seen in our selfishness. It's seen in that we don't prefer others. It's seen in that we don't serve others. We don't serve people in our home. We don't serve people in the church. We don't serve people at work. We're just about us. You know, I, when we were in chapter 5, I thought Haman was at the pinnacle of earthly glory. When he was boasting to his wife and friends about how great he was. He, he had climbed to the top of the Empire State Building. But now we see that wasn't enough. This week, he has climbed to the top of the lightning rod that's on top of the Empire State Building. And we're going to see how quickly God brings him down with just one bolt of lightning. He's got to come crashing like a rock. And God will bring him down. And all, all God had to do was bring him, to bring him down was just use his own pride against him. That's all God had to do. I mean, it's pretty funny if you think about it. He just used his own words, his own pride against him. Now, you may know some people who are arrogant, who are boastful. Maybe you're in a situation where they're, they're, that person is constantly mocking you and belittling you, and they're making your life miserable. You don't have to fret over them. You don't have to fret. They, they may have favor with your boss, or in this case, favor with a sovereign king. They may want your head. But see, God knows how to take their pride and use it against them. So don't fret, don't worry. Pray and wait and see what God does. Now third, to trust God, we want to see how God exchanges the circumstances of the proud with the humble. God exchanges the circumstances of the proud with the humble. Look at verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who's sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback to the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Oh, isn't this great? I mean, God has turned the table on Haman. And here we see the humor of God. He sits in the heavens and laughs. The devil plots against God. The, the wicked plot against the righteous. They gnash their teeth at them. The Lord laughs at him. Why? Because he sees his day coming. God sees it all coming. And so when the wicked devise evil against you, God sits in the heavens and laughs. And so you can plot all you want. You can plan all you want. God says, I'm going to have the last laugh. Why? Because I'm the one providentially controlling everything. He sees your day coming. And he knows how to humble the arrogant. He will humble those who exalt themselves. And if you continue, if you're one of those people who continue in your arrogance against God, God knows how to bring you down. He knows how to bring you down. That's what he did with Haman. 
But here I find what's interesting is how God brings him down. Because God doesn't bring him down all at once. No. Haman must first honor Mordecai. Did you see that? God could have just had him wiped out right then. No, he's first going to honor Mordecai. So Mordecai had announced, just pronounced all the things that he wanted done for himself. Oh, king, do this for this person. Do this for this person. Do this. And and he must have been ecstatic and in anticipation of the high honor he was about to receive. And then it says in verse 10, then the king said to Haman, yes, here it comes. Here's the honor. Take quickly the robes and the horse you have said and do so for Mordecai the Jew. Wow. Can you imagine the look of horror on his face? What? He's believed, he's about to be honored, he's high and mighty, and, he, and the king tells him to go honor Mordecai. Oh, the first blow to his pride. The first blow. This is going to cut him down the side. He's not so high and mighty after all. And the king says this, go do exactly what you said. You said this. Now go do it. So here we see how God used Haman's pride in defining exactly the honor to be given to Mordecai at his own expense. And the king says, don't fall short in anything you have said. The king thinks this is a good idea. Haman was one of his most noble princes. Go do what you just said. Here's a valuable lesson for us. Here's a valuable lesson. Haman thought more highly of himself than he should have. He thought he was someone important. Here's what he failed to realize. He was simply a servant of the king. It didn't matter how much honor and privilege and all the things that got bestowed on him. He's still a servant of the king. That's all he is. He's not the king. And we need to remember that. Because it doesn't matter how many privileges you have, what honors have been bestowed on you, or what blessings you have received, you got to remember, you're not the king. You're a servant of the king. In fact, you are Christ's slave. Jesus said to his disciples, when you do all the things which you're commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We've, we have done only that which we ought to have done. We're just unworthy slaves. Do you, do you realize that? You're, you're a sinner saved by grace. An unworthy slave. So even though God throws all these blessings on you because he's generous and kind, just remember who, who you are. An unworthy slave. I get to be a slave of Christ. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I'm happy doing that. Just be amazed that you get to be his slave. And so because Haman was a servant, the king ordered him what to go do. Go honor Mordecai. So here we see what God has done, don't we? Haman came into the presence of the king to ask for Mordecai's head. But before he can ever even speak and make his request, he finds himself now having to honor the man he hates. Now, you've got to remember the background of all this, right? Haman had just built a gallows 75 feet high to hang Mordecai on. 
The whole city knows about this, right? When you're driving down the hill into Vallejo and you can look over to Six Flags, you can see the, the roller coasters, right? They're really tall. Well, this guy built a gallows 75 feet high. Everybody saw it. And they knew what it was for. It was the talk of the town. Haman's wife and his friends knew that Haman had gone off to get Mordecai's head and get permission for that. There was great anticipation. There's excitement that morning. This is going to be a good day. Haman's going to get his sweet revenge. But what do we see when Haman comes out of the palace? Is he with Mordecai? Oh, yes, he is. But wait a minute. What do you see? Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on a horseback to the city square and proclaimed before him, this shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Do you see what's happened here? He's become the servant of Mordecai. Isn't God funny? God's sitting in the heavens. This is, this is just making him laugh. He had to array Mordecai. <laughs> the man he wants to kill, he has to put the royal robe on. He's got to help him get on the horse. He's got to lead him around. Think about that. He's leading him around the square where everyone was supposed to bow down to him. The only one who never bowed down to him was Mordecai, and he's leading around Mordecai. Just think what everybody's thinking. Think of the shame, the humiliation. embarrassment total disgrace the man he hated the man he wanted dead he's honoring and everyone knew Haman wanted him dead so the tables have turned Haman's on the way down Mordecai is on the way up see what God does is he can take your greatest enemies and he can turn them around to promote your interests that's how great God is and so that's why we can trust him. You have no one to fear but God. And he can easily turn the tables on any situation. Any situation. Now let, let's just consider Mordecai for a moment. Mordecai was humble. In verse 10, we're told Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. That's where official business, government business was carried out. That's where he worked. So he was just minding his business, he was doing his job, and out of nowhere, it seems, the king decides to honor him by the very man who hates him. So how would you respond to that? You know this guy hates you, and then, and then now this guy's honoring you. Wow. Maybe you have somebody like that in your life. Can you imagine? Right? You have this co-worker who hates you and belittles you, and then your boss makes him honor you. I mean, that, I mean, how would Mordecai respond to that? I, I think maybe a little surprise. It had to feel good on the inside, right? He's paraded around by the, the, in the heart of the city by his greatest enemy. The, the, the same square where Mordecai days earlier had been clothed in sackcloth. Now he's clothed in the robes of a king. See, when you humble yourself, God exalts you. He'll put on royal robes on you. That begins at salvation, right? When, when you humble yourself before Christ, God dresses you in the righteousness of Christ, the royal robes of Christ. 
That's what he does. And you're now a son of the king. And that's how he honors undeserving sinners who put their trust in Christ. So Mordecai, I would imagine, was encouraged by this honoring. God hadn't forgotten his people. God is still at work. God is even doing beyond what he could ask or think. So God, he must have some satisfaction in that. God had vindicated him. There is such a thing as divine justice. That's why the Bible says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so God is repaying Haman exactly what he deserves. That had to make Mordecai good. That had to almost make him feel proud. But, but we notice what the text, we have no hint of this in the text. No hint of this. Do you see what Mordecai does after Haman honors him? Verse 12 says, he returns to the king's gate. He goes back to work. We don't hear him boasting. We don't see him calling his wife and friends together and boasting and all the things God had done for him. No, he's humble. He's not letting this go to his head. Mordecai had been greatly honored. But you know what? Mordecai was still concerned for his people. Because the law hadn't been revoked. This is no time to celebrate. And when you're humble, you think beyond yourself. You're concerned for God's people. And that's what we see here. He was humble. Haman, in contrast, was humiliated. Look at verse 12 again. Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home mourning with his head covered. So he, he hurries home with his tail between his legs. Here's a man who wanted the limelight. He wanted the attention, but not anymore. He wants to get out of sight. He goes home mourning. I mean, how different from when he left his home that morning. He left confident with his head high. He leaves home that morning joyful with anticipation. He left home seeking revenge. He comes home humiliated, defeated, lamenting with his head covered. He's got his hoodie on. Because he doesn't want anybody to recognize him. He was publicly dishonored. And he had actually traded places with Mordecai. Mordecai was humble. Mordecai was mourning for his people. Now Haman was mourning and humbled. And Mordecai's exalted. I mean, what a difference a day makes. The day before, he left the king's palace merry and joyful. Today, he leaves disgrace and dishonored. And he heads home to find some sanctuary. And he recounts to his wife and his friends everything that had happened. And notice their encouraging words to him. Look at verse 13. Here's their encouraging words. Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him. That was the last words he heard from them. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Not very encouraging words, right? You go home, you want to find some consolation from your wife and friends. And everyone recognized that Haman had begun to fall before Mordecai. He's on his way down. And they realize something. He's of Jewish origin. And because he's of Jewish origin, you're in big trouble. 
you will not overcome him. And they understand that because God is a great God and God has a reputation not just among the Jews but even among the Gentiles. Even the enemies of the Jews recognize the power of God. God has a track record of delivering his people. God has a reputation. He's made a name for himself. That's why you can trust him. He's in the delivering business. Right? He's he's delivered you from your greatest calamity. He sent Christ for you, his own son. And if he's given you Christ, then you have everything. And so you can trust him. So it doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter what you're going through. And things may look bleak. It may be the 11th hour. But you can still trust God. Amen? You can trust Him. And so, beloved, we we see here that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And we see how God does that. He... It's by exerting control over every single event, whether it's great or small, so that his plans of doing good for his people are brought to fruition. And God does these things in such a way that it's abundantly evident to his people and his enemies that he did this, so that he's glorified. And so this means you can trust him. God opposes the proud And he will use their own pride against them to make them fall. And you will see that. And you will say, I can trust him. He will exchange the circumstances of the proud with the humble. The proud are brought low, the humble are exalted. That's why we can trust our sovereign God. Amen? What a God, huh? And we need this big picture of God, don't we? Because it it helps us in our day-to-day living. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we are amazed at how awesome you are. And we catch a glimpse of that in this text. And your name is never mentioned, but we see your hand everywhere. And Lord, I pray that you would help your people see your hand everywhere. Lord, because we don't see you We live by faith. Lord, we have to trust. And so, Lord, use your word to to build up your people, Lord, because some of them are going through difficult circumstances and they need faith. They need to trust you, that you're working things out. And maybe we don't understand what you're doing, but, oh, you're going to bring about good for your namesake and for our good. And so we give you praise. In Christ's name, amen.